Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's edition of the show. I am Dr. David DeRose. We're talking today about some really cutting-edge information Some things that inspired me when I was attending the first virtual meeting of the American Public Health Association, originally intended to be in San Francisco, California, but all of us, some 9,000 individuals joined on a virtual platform. One of them was Dr. Eric Crosby. He's our guest today. Eric, it's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Eric, now you and I were neighbors for a time. I mean, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because I was living in the eastern part of Northern California. You're in the Reno area. Tell us a little bit about what uh, you're up to in that uh, part of Indian country. Yeah, very nice. Um, so, so then, thank you for having me, and thank you for talking to another audience here. Um, yeah, no, it's a nice area. It's, again, native California, but I lived here the last couple of years, and, and there is a huge, uh, or not huge, but a substantial uh, American Indian Native Alaskan population. And, you know, health is just one of those issues that's important to all humans. So hopefully, you know, (laughs) talking about issues today will be very interesting for your audience. I think it's going to be very relevant. And my audience, of course, although it's a program especially focused on areas of interest to Native Americans, Alaska Natives, and other indigenous peoples, really we have folks tuning in from all walks of life, some with very little contact to First Nation peoples. So I know this is a really great topic. The topic, for those of you uh, joining us, is commercial determinants of health. Eric, before we set the stage, a lot of folks want to know about you. Some folks know you. You actually had a pretty prominent role there at APHA. I know you chaired a couple of sessions and made a couple of presentations. But tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I'm a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. I'm in the School of Community Health Sciences, but my background's actually in political science. So I was trained as a political scientist, and I use that lens to basically look through health issues and, more importantly, health policy. And just over the years, you know, I'm just one of those individuals who was curious about how, you know, things affect our health. And I was just fascinated with corporations, and I worked... um, at the Center for Tobacco Control at UCSF, a a leading medical school in the world in San Francisco, and just really learned a lot about the deception of tobacco companies, which, again, framed this idea of commercial determinants, which we'll get into. So it's looking at some of these more prominent industries and how they affect our health. Oh, okay. I did not realize you had that connection with UCSF. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Glantz. Yeah, no, it's great. and I still work with a lot of colleagues over there. And UCSF is home, and, and maybe we'll get into this, but is home to some of the first original documents from whistleblowers from tobacco, who, again, used to work for the tobacco companies and gave documents to a couple colleagues there that then just unleashed this whole, you know, typhoon of just public information for people to see for themselves the activities of what these industries are doing. Yeah, some uh, some years ago, Dr. Glantz, who was, of course, for many years a, a leading figure there at UCSF in that area, uh, had joined us on our show in the past. So uh, commercial tobacco is something that really has uh, taken a toll in Indian country as well as in other places, and uh, a lot of tribes 
really, you know, pushing back against that commercialization of something that, uh, you know, had roots in something that uh, to, to many First Nation peoples was something sacred that was not used uh, in an addictive way. So, Eric, you've got this interesting background. I don't talk with many political scientists who are so active in the health arena. How did that transition take place? How did you end up at UCSF and tobacco control and then finally at the University of uh, uh, Nevada there in Reno? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll try to keep this short. But I I used to work with Dr. Glantz, actually. Um, I was just looking for, you know, like any young student, I was finishing my master's at San Francisco State. I was working in international relations, which is a subfield of uh, political science, always interested not just in local issues, but global issues. And uh, I just worked at the tobacco center there while I was finishing my master's and just was just amazed by how many things that these companies were doing. Um, Just remarkable. And so I always was interested in the political side and policy and, and that aspect. And what's interesting about health is it is multi-sectoral. I think a lot of people in the public health field, probably people you've had on your show, whether they're doctors or nurses or people, they tend to look at, okay, health from a either an epidemiological perspective or health services and really focus and narrow in. And I think what's helpful for me is I come from a different lens. I look at health from a political sense, just like a maybe a lawyer would or a, an economist or um, you know maybe a sociologist. And I think that's really helped me kind of educate even the people in the public health field to understand that there are other aspects. So just one quick example, I mean, here in Reno, we have a lot of casinos and a lot of bars and, you know, there's an economic issue in terms of, you know, um, you know, if we want to put forward policies to remove smoking in those casinos. So it's something that in any policy you have to take into factor the economics, the law, um, you know, the business perspective, And so my interests were always aligned with just understanding corporations, but what better corporation understand than the tobacco companies, which I would argue have a longer history of kind of fighting (laughs) against government. And so it has that dynamic, you know, kind of the free market approach, capitalism versus public health. It has the the long history of deception. Tobacco companies were, you know, back in the 90s were hauled in front of Congress. And I don't know if you remember, they had to like put their hands up and swear Mm -hmm. that nicotine was not addictive well obviously they were all lying um but just that whole whistleblower that whole experience of just exposing um just how you know rotten these companies were was a really just a big eye-opener and so i just kind of ran with that used it to kind of then transition and i applied for a position here in reno and the dean here of our school was really open to the idea of oh let's look at some of these other disciplines let's look at business let's look at economics and it's what we call kind of a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just looking at health. And again, we all in disciplines, we remain in our silos. Political scientists mostly talk to political scientists. Legal scholars talk mostly to legal scholars. And I, so I'm one of my goals is to try to branch out and open that communication and dialogue with these other disciplines. Well, I really appreciate you taking that, uh, that dive, if you will, into a, an area that's uh, not been embraced by too many folks. And Eric, you helped to pull together a session at the American Public Health Association meetings that to me was pretty novel, at least from from my circles. I have I have not sat in a discussion of commercial determinants of health, 
maybe to set it in its proper context for my whole listening audience, because we do have folks that are health professionals who tune in, people with tribal health, people who are on tribal councils, and they're they're well-versed in a lot of these discussions. But we have a lot of lay folks who tune in, and they may not hear some of the policy discussions. But let's frame this from the broader context of what's often called social determinants of health, old school guy like me, physician with public health training as well, a lot of times working in a clinical practice, when we talk about preventive medicine, we talk about public health, we're often focused on individuals talking about their personal behaviors. But we step back when we talk about social determinants of health. Can you give us a little insight into that whole discipline? To understand social determinants, let's let's kind of walk back in history and how people mostly have thought about determinants. So when we talk about Determinants, these are things that determine, explain, cause your health. So for decades, even centuries, uh, most people in the public health professions have really looked at biological determinants. So looking at things like, you know, your age or your sex or seeing if you have certain genetical makeup or biology. Right. So if you have a history of high blood pressure or cholesterol, right, you have a higher chance of, you know, getting some of those diseases. Right. So you could look at somebody's biological and genetic makeup to understand some of their, um, you know, determining outcomes from health. Then as kind of the science developed, there were um, other explanations that was not just about your, your nature, right, about how you were born and your pre-consisting conditions, but there was also behavioral causes, right? And so a lot of, and again, still to this day, a lot of clinical psychologists, a lot of people who focus on the, at the individual level will look at individual behaviors, like overconsumption of alcohol or smoking or certain kind of drug usage. But then I would say in the last 20, 30 years, there's been kind of a broad movement to look at other societal factors, right? And that's where we get the social determinants of health. So it's not just, you know, how you were born with your pre-existing condition or the behaviors you may pick up, but what's, what's happening around you, what's happening in your environment, right? So where are you born? Where do you work? How do you live, right? What is the economic um, stability of your family? Do you have access to um, medical care or health, right? And so this really shaped kind of still the thinking today of looking at these societal, systemic, environmental impacts. Well, commercial determinants is kind of a branch from that thinking, right? So expanding our approach of how our health is being determined. And really what commercial determinants is, it looks at commercial factors, Right. So it's it's part of the environment. But what are certain industries doing and strategies that are you know unhealthy or harmful to our health? Right. So this really focuses on two areas. One is marketing and advertising, which we'll get into later. Um, but how do companies market their products? I mean, this is really interesting stuff because this is really a quantum leap for where a lot of folks have been, as you laid out the landscape, Eric, uh, so many people thinking of individual health factors, and a lot of times we lose sight of these broad issues. And as you painted that picture for social determinants of health, I know at the APHA meetings, I was in a number of sessions where there was a lot of discussion about how COVID-19 has really unmasked a lot of these social inequities and a lot of these uh, challenges that people have in certain environments that are really not of their own choosing at all. And you're really pulling back 
the, the, the curtain, if you will, on another dimension, and that is how all these commercial factors that are really influencing our environment, whether it's our environment as far as what we're hearing, what we're seeing, but also just the options we have when we walk down the, the aisles in a store or, I mean, it's a broad reaching subject, isn't it? Right. And it's continuously evolving, right? So this is a new term that's been used to try to categorize, um, you know, kind of these commercial influences, right? So commercial influences have been happening for a while, but to actually take a concept and to make it, make it understandable is, is something big. And you mentioned earlier that there was about 9,000 people at the, at the conference. So imagine of those 9,000 people, and I'd be happy to pull everybody, if, you know, how many of them have heard about social determinants? I would say, you know, the majority of them have heard about it or know about it. But if you polled people about commercial determinants, I would say less than 5% of those 9,000 people know that, yes, there's environmental impacts, but they're coming from a commercial sector, right? There are commercial influences through marketing, through lobbying practices that are harmful to our health, that are detrimental to how society is shaped, right? So it's not just that, you know, you live in an area, we use a concept called food desert, right? Where mm -hmm. you may not have access to healthier options. Well, those options just don't come out of thin air, right? They are pushed by commercial entities through marketing. They are pushed by political lobbying to make those political decisions. And, and again, I, you know, I used to live in San Francisco where you could walk up one street and you have Whole Foods Market, Safeway, all these grocery outlets, very accessible for, you know, groceries. But then you walk three, four blocks down, you're into the Tenderloin where you have nothing but fast food restaurants, uh, you know, uh, gas stations or, you know, there's a lot of alcohol, tobacco. So really your environment is your social determinant, but what's really shaping that social determinant? And that's what I really want to hope to get across today with the audience. Great. So this is really fascinating stuff. And I know we got a whole show together, but as we're getting ready to close out this segment, can you just give us a landscape of where we're headed over the next uh, three segments? Yeah, so what I would like to do is just explain to you, in public health, we talk about the problem and then the solution. So I'd like to talk about the emerging problems that are happening in the 21st century and how commercial determinants can help us look through this lens to understand some solutions to combat these new increasing problems. Thank you so much, Dr. Crosby. We are going to be back with more from Dr. Eric Crosby. This is really pertinent stuff if you're a tribal leader, if you're living on a reservation, if you're a living in an urban area and you're native, even if you're not, these are really important issues for everybody if you're concerned about optimum health for you and your community. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more on today's edition of the show. We'll be right back after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. 
If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our show today. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're talking with Dr. Eric Crosby. The focus is on commercial determinants of health. And Eric, before we jump back into this very important discussion, I know folks in my audience love to get to know my guests better. You are an assistant professor there at the University of Nevada at Reno. You're in the community, actually, in the community health sciences uh, division there, even though you have a political science background. We heard a little bit about that in the first segment. But one of the things I know you've got an interesting background in is just you know, going about the whole process of getting further education. And why I want to narrow in on this, Eric, is because we've got a lot of folks throughout Indian country who are looking at different educational opportunities. I meet so many uh, Native youth who are telling me they want to get more training, come back to their community, give back to to the ones who've really brought them into the world and nurtured them. And tell us a little bit about your journey, because I think it could speak to a lot of people in my audience. Right. So, um, again, and everything's kind of related, but I come from a big family, uh, kind of a poor background. My parents didn't go to college. I didn't, you know, you just kind of like, oh, what's college? What's that? And so I grew up in California where I went to a community college first because that was more affordable. Couldn't get into the, the other schools. And in California, they have three tiers. The community college is the lower tier. Then I moved to a state school, San Francisco State. And then I went to UC Santa Cruz. And so that each level, I got to see different students, different faculty and while I had, you know, we all come from different backgrounds, I had kind of financial constraints, um, I was able to get through those. And I was, I am the person I am today because of that. And I speak to that now because one thing I enjoy instead of just teaching is talking with young students or just young individuals. I go and speak at middle schools, high schools, 
uh, even to, I, I work with a lot of undergraduate students and I speak about passion and happiness because that's, I think, the key to life. Obviously, health is part of that. But I think there's a lot of students who follow either what their parents have told them or what, you know, society has told them about college and that you should follow this linear path. Um, you know, you've probably heard the stories that, you know, when I was young, uh, you know, I wanted to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. And I just think the more and more young people I talk to and as the older they get, they have a similar story to mine, which I think is 90 percent that you change a lot. Right. You mm-hmm. have different experiences that open different opportunities. So I was a photography major at once and then history and then political science and then health. And so but now I use all those elements. Right. But I think if you follow your passion, if you're happy, you don't it doesn't seem like work. I mean, I, I don't feel like I work a day in my life. And I think that's the key to success. And then just one other point is that. I know that higher education colleges, they're kind of good and bad, right? I mean, I can tell you the bad side about, about how, you know, expensive they can be and the, the cost barriers and, and the student debt and things of that nature. Sure. But there's scholarships, there's opportunities, you know, there's, there's ways I've gotten through school as, again, a financial hardship and, and able to do it. But I do think I also studied international relations and the world is becoming increasingly competitive. Hmm. So, and when you have automation and you don't have a skill set, some kind of skill, whether you get it in the university or you get it from some kind of training, for those who want to give back to their community, you have to be able to have knowledge, expertise in an area to assist those others. So that would be my big message takeaway. Tremendous. So folks uh, who are listening today, whether you're at a place in your life where you're saying, uh, hey, I'm, I'm pretty young or I'm even in middle age, but I would like to be able to do more. It's never too late to get more education. I've uh, taught in college classrooms as well, Eric, and I've had many of those non-traditional students, you know, going back, getting, uh, because my discipline is, you know, health-related, getting a, a healthcare career after they went into a, another career path, and they said, hey, I want to do something that really engages me more with my people, more with the community, more service-oriented. So really great. Appreciate your story. And with all that background, you've taken your focus and you're looking at these so-called commercial determinants of health. Again, set that stage for us just briefly for some who might just be joining us and then uh, continue to give us some idea as to why this is so important. Right. Thank you. So uh, again, in the health, you know, it's a problem solution oriented discipline, right? So what's the problem, right? What's causing our health? You know, what are, what's causing people to die? What's causing people to get sick? And a lot of times we look at biological factors, things like, you know, you your genetics or your preconceived, uh, you know, family history or behaviors individually, right? If you're a smoker, you drink too much alcohol. More recently, we've looked at the environment, right? Social determinants of health, um, systemic issues, things that, that can cause problems. But commercial determinants of health, what I'm talking about today is a, a branch of that society, right? Those social determinants of health, but looking at commercial factors. And, and what I mean by that are, you know, certain marketing, advertising practices, lobbying of politicians to basically promote products that are unhealthy Mm -hmm. for our bodies, things like tobacco, alcohol, um, sugar, uh, medicine, certain things that, that yes, of course, everyone can have them in moderation. Uh, And again, smoking is, you know, probably really interesting to, to that group. But I mean, just one quick example, if you look at natural tobacco, um, and again, this is a lot in the native populations, natural tobacco was used as a ceremonial thing. It's, you know, practice. And actually, if you smoke tobacco from, you know, people who smoke cigars, let's say, they actually, yes, there's side effects and there are problems. But when you look at a manufactured cigarette, again, a cigarette from the 1930s to the 1970s to 2020, 
these companies are putting very addicted you know substances in these products so they're not it's not just natural tobacco anymore it's mixed with all of these chemicals and that's part of commercial determinants is looking at okay this is an unhealthy product if you use it too much but again in its intended purpose people have been smoking tobacco for for centuries right but now what's happened is they put all these chemicals into it and they've advertised them to very young people who again are being influenced by these sectors so again commercial determinants looks at the marketing, and the political practices of these industries. So to help us better understand these commercial determinants, Eric, we really would like to see through your eyes because I had the privilege at the American Public Health Association meetings to hear you do a very comprehensive uh, overview, would probably be the best way to describe it, of these commercial determinants. And you put it in a context that made it understandable for health professionals, but I sense that you were someone who was good at explaining things, and I said, hey, this guy could do a great job in making it understandable for our radio audience. So tell us a little bit more about you know where this thinking of commercial determinants comes from, at least in the healthcare arena, and then how it impacts all of us. Right. So again, in, in public health, and I'll walk this through both the public health people who understand this and even people who are not in public health. So um, first, in public health, um, a lot of scholars use what is called the epidemiological triangle. So imagine a triangle, there's three parts, right? There's a host, the agent, and the environment. Well, in any kind of disease or any kind of thing that's going to cause your, you know, something for you to go wrong is what we call the agent. So imagine right now during the COVID-19, um, you know, the pandemic, that things are being spread throughout with just the direct communication or involvement with other human beings. And let's say, imagine at the top end of the spectrum, you're the host, right? You're the individual who's being affected by the spread of this disease. But what causes the disease to interact differently is a lot your environment, right? And so the environment is kind of the social determinants of health, right? So if you're in an environment where, you know, nobody's wearing a mask, right, you're more likely to probably get maybe COVID-19 if you're you know, if you are a little bit older and so so forth. But the, the key part of understanding commercial determinants is understanding what's the vector, what's inside that triangle, right? So you have the three pillars, the host, the agent, the environment, but what's the vector that's causing the disease to happen? So in, in, in public health, we talk about, you know, something like tuberculosis. We look at mosquitoes, right? So if you're in an environment where there's a bunch of deadly mosquitoes, that can infect you. So more or like malaria, we're like talking COVID. malaria, you mean? Malaria, malaria, or yeah, exactly. And so when, when it can affect you, that can be something that's, that's very harmful or, or same like with COVID-19 with a, with a, a bat or a certain kind of animal. Well, commercial determinants uses that same framework, but it reorients who the vector is and how that's causing the disease. So if I can give your audience one example with cigarettes. So let's say the agent uh, of the disease that's being spread is, let's say, Marlboro cigarettes, right? The, I think most people know the kind of famous red icon Marlboro cigarettes. But imagine yourself, I want you to kind of close your eyes and imagine yourself walking to an environment like a liquor store where you see nothing but, you know, uh, signs of promotions, buy two, get one free, uh, you know, on sale, big, yellow, bright, bold font, um, and then you as the host is more susceptible to smoking because you're around all of that, you know, marketing and advertising. But in commercial determinants, it's not a big mosquito that is lobbying Congress or marketing and pulling the mm. strings. It's these big tobacco companies, right, that they're 
directly marketing to young people, vulnerable populations, people who don't know, you know, the environment that they grow up. And so it looks at the marketing from that perspective. And so again, commercial determinants looks at the vector of disease and how that influences uh, our health. So basically what I hear you talking about, Dr. Crosby, is a lot of times as a physician, as I'm sitting with a patient, if they're dealing with addictive commercial tobacco, they got lung problems or other issues, I'm talking with them about their personal interaction with those cigarettes. But I'm often not thinking of this broader picture that it's likely, at least to some extent, that why they're smoking, or at least one of the things that was involved in their adopting that habit, no doubt there was probably peer elements, very likely, but there were these commercial determinants where businesses were promoting to their peers, maybe 50 years ago, depending on how old they are, uh, certain brands and uh, showing images that made this look like something desirable. Am I understanding what you're trying to convey? Yes, that's exactly correct. We have to step away just briefly, Eric. And uh, for those of you tuning in on today's broadcast, we've got some really cutting-edge stuff that can make a difference for you wherever you're at in life's journey. I'm Dr. David DeRose. A lot more to come. Stay tuned. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph when blam! Ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for the second half of today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are speaking with Dr. Eric Crosby. Dr. Crosby is an assistant professor at the University of Nevada at Reno. He is in the Department of Community Health Sciences. He's been taking a background which includes a doctorate in political science and bringing it to the table as far as dialoguing about some important determinants of health. We're talking about specifically commercial determinants of health today. Eric, I think one of the big questions as we're speaking about this so much today, uh, well, I'll just be honest with you. You know it. I know it. My listeners know it. So many factions on any topic, and it seems like everyone's accusing the other side of doctoring the evidence. That's just your perspective. How does anyone know that what you're talking about is really any different? This is just some guy who spent all these years in school, and now he's uh, bad-mouthing uh, these good businesses. Right. So so thank you for the question. It's a really important one, especially because we have an election today and <laughs> there's a lot of uh, controversy going on. Um, so one thing I wanted to point out is that a lot of the research that I do and people who are in my field who look at commercial determinants, we look at what are called ugly industries, right? These are industries that purposely sell products that are harmful for people. Um, and again, I use tobacco as the main example because if your listeners are interested, we have a website at UCSF called industrydocuments.ucsf.edu. And what this is, is this is a collection of internal tobacco industry documents, over 80 million pages of the industry executives, their former memos, their leaked emails, things that they're saying internally that we write about. So instead of a researcher speculating on different aspects, we can write word for word what they're actually communicating in their internal discussions. Now, this went by pretty quick, especially for some of my commuters who might be listening as they're driving, but it's industry documents. I got that part of it, right? Yeah, so it's industrydocuments.ucsf.edu. Okay, so UCSF for the University of California at San Francisco. Yes. Dot .edu. Dot .edu. So if I can just remember industry documents and remember their... They're housed at UCSF. Then I got it. Industry yeah, documents. Yeah, you type that into Google. You'll be good. Okay. And this is just tobacco related or is it commercial uh, documents broadly? Right. So it started with tobacco. There was a former whistleblower back in the 1990s who basically found out that tobacco was addictive. The tobacco CEOs were hauled into Congress and as a result – had to release a lot of their former documents that, again, started with a small box at UCSF, and now it's accessible to anybody online. Well, two or three years ago, people at the library, along with researchers like myself, worked to try to collect more documents from other industries. So now if you go onto that website, you will not only find tobacco, but you have documents from the chemical industry, the drug industry, the food industry, and the fossil fuel industry. Wow. So basically, if someone's saying, hey, we've got challenges in in our tribe, we've got challenges on this reservation, and I know there have been some real major commercial interfaces with uh, tribal health, you know, whether it's uranium mining or whether it's pollution of waterways that indigenous peoples have relied on for fishing or whatever the case might be, 
there's someone in a tribal health department, they could actually go into these documents. They might find things that relate to their tribe even. Absolutely. And so I would encourage all of your listeners who, who are interested in this. If you go onto the main website, you can search the actual publications. And now there's been over, I think, 500 peer-reviewed journal articles that have used the industry documents. And I do remember when I was at UCSF that there were two or three researchers who come from native populations who wrote about the marketing practices of tobacco companies and targeting specifically native groups based on these kind of cultural symbols of smoking. Mm -hmm. So really, uh, you know, fascinating stuff, but also very troubling and sad when you look at the direct access. But for your other listeners who are interested in the environment and like now our new collection with the fossil fuel industry, you know, really doing things like fracking or other parts, the whole parts of the, the environment, which are really troubling for native lands. I, I would really encourage others to look at that as well. Tremendous, tremendous. So thanks for putting us on to that, Eric. And you've taken time to look at a lot of these documents and you're pulling them together. You're sharing them with groups. You shared them with us at uh, APHA, American Public Health Association's annual meeting in 2020. And for those who picked up on your subtle cue, we are recording this show in November of 2020. The APHA meetings took place just about a week ago. Tell us a little bit more about what you've learned now, why this is so important and what we need to be thinking about when it comes to commercial determinants. Right. So I think, you know, again, working in tobacco for so many years, I think most people identify, okay, there's some pretty bad guys that work over there, right? We know we, the public consciousness is out, right? We know that tobacco has been fought for the last 50, 70 years. And so we know that, that some of their practices are, are very harmful, I think what's more surprising is when you look at these other industries, right? So this is not tobacco determinants of health, right? These are commercial determinants, mm -hmm. right? These are, it's a broad spectrum of really what we call, again, ugly industries in um, public health. So these are, again, not just tobacco, but there's food and beverage. There is alcohol, fossil fuel, pharmaceutical companies, right? That basically, again, market or sell their products that are harmful to our health. So for those of you who are interested in the environment, right, you can look at, let's say, the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that is something that's that's really important. So, Eric, in your presentation, you went through a lot of slides I and mean, you had some great material. Uh, if we can pull off a, a video enhanced presentation of this program, uh, many of my Regular listeners know that we've been trying to get some video footage on some of the programs. Uh, actually, it may be an interesting note for those of you listening uh, on radio. Go ahead and, uh, and check out our website, which is American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Uh, actually, it's the abbreviation for that. So it's A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. So American Indian and Alaska Native Living dot O-R-G. So A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. And if you go there, you'll actually find the radio archives. You'll find our magazine. And we're trying to upgrade that uh, site so you can also get links to our video content. Uh, the other place you can find it is on my website, which is actually my YouTube channel. Uh, I work for a company called Compass Health Consulting. So we're trying to pull that off, Eric, and get some of the, uh, the graphics because even though we're doing a radio interview, you don't realize it listening but Eric has been showing graphics as we've been talking about his presentation. So help us understand this. Uh, you had a slide up at APHA, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What is all that uh, nomenclature trying to differentiate? As an academic and somebody who's really interested in just 
promoting the facts and just kind of evidence. I'm, as you mentioned earlier, right? I don't want this to be a political debate about what people feel, but I want to reveal what, again, has been characterized based on actions. And so when we say commercial determinants, I don't want anyone to go away with the sentiment of feeling, oh, he's just bashing corporations or businesses, because that's not true. What commercial determinants is looking at, and it was what has been characterized by other people, is what is called the good, the bad, and the ugly. So there are a lot of really good companies out in the world. And if you look at surveys of best practices, there are companies like Lego who sell and manufacture toys. I mean, I have a son and he loves Legos, right? It's a great, great company that that promotes kind of those happy thoughts, enjoyment, things of that nature. They're also called bad companies, which again, by surveys, what people are saying about companies, there are financial institutions where people are really upset with paying high fees on their paychecks. So when we're talking bad, it's not necessarily that someone's saying they're they're morally bad. It's just that when you do customer service surveys of commercial banks and things, a lot of times people will say, no, they're making it hard on me. They're hitting me with all these fines. Is, is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Yes, okay. yes. Thank you for the clarification. So yes, not morally bad. These are still good people who work for all these companies, but just by their surveys, customer service that they are recognized as some of the kind of, you know, bad companies based on yeah, high fees, transaction rates, customer service. Um, but in commercial determinants, we use a framing, what is called ugly companies. And so these are, again, big tobacco, big alcohol, big pharma, which basically sell and market products that they know are harmful to our health, right? So if a tobacco company is selling a product that's very addictive, that again, kills over half of its intended users. They know that that's bad, but they still continue to sell it. Or alcohol, right? If they're selling products and marketing to very young, vulnerable people, that's what kind of separates them from some of these other companies, that they are purposely marketing these products, knowing the damage um, that they're causing to individuals. So help us understand a little bit more about what you would look from a public health perspective at a company doing something that is ugly as far as their impact on society, their impact on health? Okay. So a really good example is when we talk about commercial factors is one area we look at is trade. So those are interested in economics and business, right? So I think everybody would agree that we as consumers, we want to buy products at the lowest possible price, right? I've taken economics classes. That's the market drives those products. But what tobacco companies have done, just for one example, is they have manipulated trade agreements and they've gotten, let's say, tariffs, which are taxes on imported goods, so low. And they have penetrated markets that they didn't normally conduct businesses. So this is what we call the global south, Africa, Asia, Latin America. And if you look over the, the 20th century, the global cigarette consumption really doubled from the 1970s to the 1990s, again, because of these trade rules that tobacco companies were manipulating. But it's not just that they were trying to sell the product at the lowest possible price. They were purposely targeting uh, vulnerable populations, young people, low middle income countries that don't have strong government capacity, don't have the ability to necessarily fight back in a way. So it's kind of preying upon these populations. And so as a result, we can look at these commercial factors and understand that these are purposely intended. We can read in the documents, and I've done research in this area, looking at how they have specifically targeted people of color, people of native descent, people in lower income, right? 
again, while knowing that these products are harmful and will kill a lot of people. Mm. And so this, I think, to a lot of people is what turned the tide, I mean, some decades ago against the tobacco industry when they really started to realize the level of uh, corruption, what seemed to many people the wanton disregard for life. I mean, that was how many people characterized it. And in Indian country, I know, like you said, you know, this whole discussion, this pushback against commercial tobacco. And in a lot of uh, places, we've heard people saying, let's focus on sacred tobacco or keeping it sacred. There have been those dialogues. I know some people in maybe religious circles might, uh, you know, raise some eyebrows depending on what their uh, religious perspective is when you use the word sacred. But throughout Indian country, I mean, that's a pretty well-established uh, approach. And they're really kind of siding with a lot of public opinion on this. So what do you see your role and others like you, Eric, uh, when it comes to a public perception that already seems to have been altered by commercial interests? Right. I think my, my big goal in all of my research is just seeking the truth. I think that a lot of the research that we do when we're looking at these industry documents is just letting the public know what these companies are up to and then letting the public decide for their own about whether they feel you know a certain way around certain companies. That is such a tremendous message, and we want to hear more in our final segment. We do have to step away. Dr. Eric Crosby of the University of Nevada is going to be back with more in our next segment. Stay tuned. Some other important insights that can make a difference for you, your community, your tribe, your family. I'm Dr. DeRose. Stay tuned. We'll be back with our final segment right after these messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions, they just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. It sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends. So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal, but taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and, and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, the poor decision making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. 
So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our final segment of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me, Dr. Eric Crosby. Eric, you've been helping us understand these commercial determinants of health, and we're all anxious to really pull this all together and really understand some of the most, well, concerning things from the vantage point of someone like you and other people in public health. Help us to understand this whole dynamic of altering the public's perception and what we can do to really just educate ourselves and make a difference. Right. So again, uh, using the tobacco example, because just because tobacco's had the long history of doing this, what a lot of these companies try to do is just deny the harmful effects of their products. And they're trying to basically minimize perception and ultimately create doubt. So again, the tobacco companies did this for decades around the addictive nature of nicotine. Um, We see this now with the fossil fuel industry denying the science around climate change and its effect on, let's say, native populations. And so, as you mentioned, I think it's really important to the work that we're doing in commercial determinants is just shedding light on what these industries are doing and trying to expose their practices so the public is just more aware. So a lot of education around these kind of deceitful and deceptive practices, I think, will help turn public perception, which will then turn into regulations and, you know, having us live in a healthier environment. Great, great. So help us to see this picture a little bit broader. What kind of things are going on with some of these commercial interests that are actually affecting perceptions in a way that actually, well, helps their bottom line and ultimately hurts the public health? So a big example from the pharmaceutical industry is that we in public health have a huge opioid epidemic. And opioids are prescription drugs that are legal. But back in the 1990s, what a lot of the big pharmaceutical companies did was they denied telling us the truth around the addictive nature, just like tobacco, of these products. And so one way they did this was actually recruiting scientists that were you know, favorable to, towards their industry perceptions uh, and their positions. And so developing not only that relationship, but that credibility. So one example from the early 2000s was from a company called Purdue Pharma, where they had this you know, doctor on the screen saying that we doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids cannot be used long-term. They can be, and they should be, right? So convincing to the public who, again, you know, we don't know much about opioids and their addictive nature, but deceptively lying. And now those companies are being brought to court. Uh, the attorney general in Kentucky is now suing them. They settled for already, already over 20 million. And now they're going after these companies. So I think shedding light on how they're manipulating the science discrediting it and using these very credible authority figures like doctors that people go to as credible sources to basically promote their very unhealthy products. Wow. So basically, when we look at some of the connections between health professionals, health experts, and commercial interests, it's not as uh, clean a plot line as we'd like, is it? 
Right. And so one of the movements that we see now in public health is we're having many more public health officials, academics, people who work in the sector, basically uh, issue conflict of interest statements. So at the APHA uh, conference, everyone has to have a required slide that says what are their conflicts of interest. So again, if I'm receiving money as a doctor from a pharmaceutical company, let the public know. Let the public know if you're receiving money from big tobacco, big alcohol. And that way, they'll know whether your science is unbiased or if it's biased towards these companies. And of course, you could argue that everyone has some biases, but uh, it's at least trying to make transparent some of these commercial biases, right? Right, exactly. And that's all we're aiming for, right? And you're exactly right. Everybody has a bias, right? I have a public health bias, right? And so I'm going to come from that lens. But in our writing, in academic writing, we try to be as neutral as possible. We try Mm -hmm. to show both sides let the reader decide for themselves what it is. But it's just in our case, we're doing a lot of transparency and exposing. And that exposing is just mostly the bad habits of these industries. So tell us a little bit about probably the most vulnerable population, at least as far as developing habits at an early age. And you could say from a commercial standpoint, boy, if you can get uh, children to buy into your product line early, I mean, you're going to get a consumer for life. At least that seems to be the motive behind a lot of what's going on. Am I reading that correctly? Right. So I hope that a lot of your audience, whether you have children or not, you see the susceptibility and the vulnerability of this demographic, right? And so again, from the industry documents, we know that all of these companies specifically target children and target children for three primary reasons. One, They represent a huge, large market, right? Not only here in the United States, but around the world. Secondly, they're able to influence parents, right? We've all seen the child at the supermarket asking for a certain product, whether it's a toy or a a candy bar or whatever. Um, But most importantly, and again, this is right out of the industry documents, is that in quotes, they are lifetime customers, Mm -hmm. right? So if you can get a consumer to buy your product, at three years old, five years old, by the time that they're 18, 20, 30, they're not only going to buy that product, but when they have children, they're also going to pass that down to their children and grandchildren as well. So you're building a brand, you're building an identity, an association. And we have to remember, these are very, very addictive products. This is not something that you can easily say no to. You know, when you look at the addiction component, that's also a really key component because as children, you know, our brains are developing. And we're especially vulnerable to those marketing practices. So I think one of the things that's uh, probably the most disturbing in the whole tobacco and and smoke product arena is one of the things that you introduced in your APHA presentation. I know Dr. Glantz, who we mentioned earlier, had spoken uh, some years ago on our show, was you know, the range of uh, inhaled products that are now coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that interfaces with this whole whole question, whole issue of marketing to children? Right. So in, in, in the tobacco world, there are, there's a huge debate around the addiction of the product and the harm of the product. And there are some now that are believing that you, if you just reduce the harm, it's okay if you have an addiction, right? So, you know, people drink coffee every day. That's an addiction. It's not as harmful to your health. But the problem is that these are very addictive substances. So talk with us about the uh, different products that we're looking at, that we're bringing into the dialogue today when we talk about inhalants. 
talking about, say, these, uh, you know, what is the hottest thing on the market today, at least, you know, from some perspectives, when it comes to big tobacco, it doesn't seem to be cigarettes, does it? Right. So basically, there's a couple new companies who are promoting this harm reduction strategy, um, which in one of the biggest companies is called Juul. You may have heard about this. And what they're doing is, again, very deceptive strategies where they're saying on one hand that they're not marketing to young people. But when you look at their images and those who can look at this, these slides later, you see very young, fun, attractive individuals that are promoting these very bright colors that are really enticing for young people. And now these new jewel pods, they don't look like conventional cigarettes. They don't have the smell. In fact, they come with all these attractive flavors like bubblegum, you know, fun and, and all these other attractive, really interesting flavors that if I was a young individual, a, a middle schooler, or even, you know, maybe young high schooler, I would be more susceptible to buying these products because they're so attractive. Mm. And again, so on one hand, they're saying they're not marketing to young people. But if you look, any reasonable person who looks at their marketing campaign, and I, I show this to all of my students, there's a big deceptive quality uh, and attraction that's going on with these products. So what about the industry documents? I mean, do we have access yet to industry documents that deal with some of these newer uh, things like Juul, for example? Right. So again, when I mentioned earlier that the document collection was over 80 million pages. They're being added every month. So there's people that are more whistleblowers. They're adding tobacco, you know, pharmaceutical, fossil fuel. And some of the recent batches we've collected have been on Juul. And this whole marketing campaign was, and again, there are people who worked for the Juul company who specifically targeted these groups. And as much like Purdue Pharma and the opioid crisis, they're being, you know, hauled in and sued by attorney generals. Juul is also having to settle millions of dollars because they purposely sold these products knowing that they were very addictive. So yes, they are also being held accountable. So this research is coming to the surface, but there's still a lot of work we have to do. There's a lot of people who don't know about these products. Because if you look at a Juul pod, they look like a USB stick that you put into you know, your computer. Hmm. So for a parent who has no idea, it's very difficult. Wow, this is, uh, I know, we're just scratching the surface. You've done so much work on this, Eric. You've pointed us to a place where we can get more information if you want to dig into the documents. Remind us again how someone could access that collection. Right, so it's the, it, the, the website is called, it's at UCSF. It's the industrydocuments.ucsf.edu um, URL. But if you go into Google, just type in industry documents. UCSF, you will find those documents. Well, Eric, you've uh, opened our minds to some important discussions when it comes to health, commercial determinants of health. And really, that's about all the time we've got. It's been great to have you with us as our guest. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you to each one of you for joining us on today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.